Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to the Financial Times Big Read, a weekly podcast featuring the best of our long-form reporting from around the world. I'm Anna Dedder from the Comment and Analysis Desk. What is left of the vision of the initiators of the Great European Project? This month, 27 leaders of the EU states gather in Rome to mark the 60th anniversary of the founding Treaty of the Union. But the 28th member will not be there, says Philip Stevens. Britain is busy with Brexit, and there are other challenges facing the Europeans. The symmetry is inescapable. On March the 25th, 1957, ministers of six European nations gathered in the capital of Italy to sign the European Economic Community's founding Treaty of Rome. Sixty years later, 27 leaders of the now EU are returning to Rome to renew their vows. Britain, absent at the creation, will leave an empty chair at the anniversary celebration later this month. While others debate the continent's future course, Theresa May, the Prime Minister, will be preparing for the formal process leading to Britain's departure. Charles de Gaulle was right, you hear French politicians mutter. Three years after the treaty was signed, Britain changed its mind and asked to join the club. The general, who'd returned to French politics to lead the Fifth Republic, twice vetoed British applications. This, after all, was a continental enterprise. Les Anglais, de Gaulle judged, would never shed their insularity. Europe would always take second place to the Americans and the Anglosphere in English affections. The Brexit vote makes him hard to gainsay. After 44 years of membership, the French veto was lifted in 1973, Britain is cutting loose again, reprising its place, as the US statesman Dean Acheson once put it, as a former imperial power, forever in search of a role. The Union, though, now faces challenges beyond the vanities of perfidious Albion. If the Brexit negotiations present the most dangerous on the near horizon, the 27 have other, sometimes existential, questions to answer. For decades, Europe was a shorthand for peace and prosperity, a model of transnational cooperation and integration that defied the deep scars of the continent's history. The descent to fascism and war during the first half of the 20th century was followed by an era of spreading democracy, rising living standards and political stability. This achievement can never be overstated. Yet the future no longer seems assured. Has it all been one of history's interludes? Europeans have begun to ask themselves as they watch the resurgence of the old nationalisms. The British absence in Rome in March 1957 had been signalled 21 months earlier when Anthony Eden's Conservative government declined to send representatives to the Messina conference in Sicily. 
archaeological diggings in an old Sicilian town, one minister had said of these first discussions about a common market. The view among the mandarins of Whitehall was that Germany, France, Italy, the Netherlands, Belgium and Luxembourg would not succeed in the quest. If by happenstance they did reach agreement, the project would soon enough falter and fail. In any event, so the argument ran, a united Europe was all very well for France, Germany and the rest, but Britain looked to a wider world. What was it Winston Churchill had said about the nation's unique position at the intersection of three circles of influence? The Commonwealth, the special relationship with Washington and the historic ties with Europe? Britain, along with the US and the Soviet Union, was one of the big three. So anyway it supposed. The mother of parliaments was jealous of its national sovereignty. And Britain, of course, had won the war. One way or another, the six had all been invaded or occupied. In the circumstances, the treaty's signing in a grand Roman palazzo did not make the front pages of the English-speaking press. Common market draft signed, said the downbeat headline on a short piece relegated to page seven of the following day's Financial Times, then a British rather than a global newspaper. The treaty, it judged, was noteworthy, but scarcely sensational. There was nothing in the reporting to suggest a fundamental change in the course of a continent. Yet it was only a few years before, in the phrase of Konrad Adenauer, the then German Chancellor, that the project was given life. Defying the passage of time, the same post-imperial nostalgia infused the UK out campaign in last year's referendum. The Brexiters cast themselves as new Elizabethans, dedicated to unshackling the nation from its own continent to shape the Commonwealth and the world. Never mind the hard economics of less favourable trading arrangements with Britain's most valuable markets, or the prospect of a diminished voice in world affairs. Britain would soon enough reclaim its global vocation. This time, though, the British are not entirely alone in their nostalgia. The founding six have also begun to recall happier times. The confidence with which they viewed the continent 60 years ago has been sapped by successive crises. Then, integration offered not just the cement of Franco-German reconciliation, but the opportunity to shape a different Europe. For the French, Europe was the answer to an overmighty US. For Germany, the way to exercise the past. As Jean Monnet one of the authors of the enterprise put it, the sovereign nations of the past can no longer solve the problems of the present. They cannot ensure their own progress or control their own future. And the community itself is only a stage on the way to the organised world of tomorrow. We should not expect such visions at the Rome gathering on March the 25th. The heirs to the founding fathers are politicians under populist assault from the anti-immigration right and the anti-globalisation left. Brexit marked a victory for a visceral English nationalism, but the challenge to internationalist elites from resurgent chauvinism has taken hold across Europe. Poland and Hungary are governed by leaders of the authoritarian right. The xenophobic National Front is challenging for power in France, and Hurt Wilders' Freedom Party has campaigned in the Netherlands on an unapologetically Islamophobic platform. Fracture and fragmentation have drained faith in solidarity. 
Running on a north-south axis, there are divisions between stronger and weaker Eurozone members. West-east, the rupture is between the EU's founding democracies and the nationalist bent of new members in the post-communist East. Unsurprisingly, politicians in the six sometimes dream of rolling back history. Monetary union would be credible with only six. And wouldn't Europe's efforts to promote democratic values be more convincing if they were not under internal fire from illiberal-minded politicians in Warsaw, Budapest and Bratislava? Not all the news is bad. Shaken as it was by the surge in refugees and migrants from the Middle East and Africa, the EU has survived the influx. Brits have never ceased to predict the early demise of the European enterprise, but it has proved remarkably resilient in surviving external shocks. After years in the doldrums, the European economy is showing signs of sustained growth. Greece, Italians like to say, will always be to the EU as the Mezzogiorno region is to Italy. Economically irredeemable, but politically essential. Elsewhere, however, so-called peripheral states, such as Ireland and Spain, are growing strongly. Hedge funds have stopped betting on a breakup of the Eurozone. True, France could destabilise everything by electing Marine Le Pen, the National Front's leader, in the spring's presidential elections, but there is a bigger chance that it will choose the centrist Emmanuel Macron or the Republican François Fillon. What's missing is a persuasive route map. Jean-Claude Juncker, President of the European Commission, underscored the uncertainty in a report prepared for the leaders ahead of the summit. Not so long ago, the Commission would have used the opportunity to call for a bold new drive to integration, a fiscal union to sit alongside the Eurozone's monetary union, EU control of national borders, a military component to the EU's foreign policy. Instead, charged with mapping the new course, Mr Juncker set out a series of alternative paths, a hesitation reflecting deep disagreement among members about the pace and direction of change. Mr Juncker's paper does include the possibility of a leap to deeper integration, but balances it with what is, in effect, a muddling through option and a doing more with less efficiency drive. Another choice points to an intense focus on deepening the single market. But the option that the German, French, Italian and Spanish governments have alighted on is that of a multi-speed Europe. This imagines different groups pursuing new integrationist projects while the unready and the unwilling hold back. The concept is not new. It exists already in the division between those inside and outside the Eurozone and the Schengen Open Borders system. Connoisseurs of irony will also note that Britain long pressed the idea as a way of formalising its many opt-outs from what it saw as the EU's more federalist projects. Variable geometry, ministers used to call it. Behind all this lies a harsher reality. The present union was designed for the world imagined by the political scientist Francis Fukuyama when he declared the end of history after the collapse of communism. The EU's great push eastwards to take in the former communist states and the deepening of integration through the creation of the euro were projects of the balmy days of the 1990s. Liberalism, political and economic, had triumphed. Europe's peace and prosperity seemed assured. The jealousies of national sovereignty were yesterday's story. 
as a normative power, the EU would promote stability in its neighbourhood and offer a model of postmodern integration for the rest of the world. Hard to believe now, but back then, books were being written about Europe as a global power. The EU of 2017 faces an entirely different environment. It's not so easy to make the case for supranational cooperation and shared sovereignty when the political currents are running in favour of a renationalising world. The financial crash and subsequent economic recession have sapped public confidence in globalisation. Rising migration has heaped cultural dislocation onto economic hardship. A revanchist Russia is challenging the fundamental principles of the post-war European order. The US, for long the cheerleader for European integration, in the person of President Donald Trump, has now turned against it. Applauding Brexit, Mr Trump has called the EU a vehicle for German domination. Mr Macron is making an unabashedly European case in France, but it has often seemed that Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, is the last champion of the Union's original mission. The painful paradox is that a splintering of the American-led post-war international order reinforces rather than weakens the founding logic of integration. It is more obvious now than then that if European nations want to amplify their voices and promote their interests, they will have to act in concert. Few of the problems facing the individual nations of Europe whether from Russian aggression, migration from the South, climate change or international crime and terrorism, are susceptible to national solutions. When Britain sobers up to the reality of Brexit, it will discover soon enough that waving the national flag will not make it easier to convince allies or to confront adversaries. Politics, European and British, has stepped beyond the realm of dispassionate calculation of values and interests. Nationalism touches the emotions of citizens who feel they have been excluded. Left behind by liberalism, by the great rush to globalisation and by politicians whose interests seem inseparable from the wealthy elites. In another age, think perhaps of the late 1950s, a generation of politicians might have found the vision to break through the populist cacophony by offering clearer sight of the future. But with the exception perhaps of Mrs Merkel, such leaders are nowhere to be seen. Sixty years on, muddle through and multi-speed are the best on offer.